0: Well, it is always a privilege to come to God's Word. Join me in John chapter 20. We are returning to where we left off in our study of John's Gospel. John chapter 20, we're at least going to start there this morning. And it is in John 20 where John moves his story of Jesus from the death of Jesus, which was the climax of Christ's redeeming work, to now, in John 20, the resurrection of Jesus, which is the capstone of Christ's life and ministry. And you cannot help but see the importance that John places upon Jesus's resurrection. You just have to read the two chapters and really the three chapters moving into John 21. You see in John 19, there is one third of that chapter that focuses on the actual dying of Jesus, one third of the chapter. And yet in John 20, you have the entirety of that chapter devoted to the resurrection of Christ. Add to that chapter 21. And if you want to add to that, you can add 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, all deal with the resurrected Jesus. Why, why is there so much space devoted to the resurrection of Christ? Answer, because it is the resurrection that sets Christ apart from all who came before him. It is the resurrection that is the sign and the seal of Christ's work of atonement. Let's put in the words of Paul. It is of first importance that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Or let's quote Romans 10 that salvation is only granted to those who confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the capstone of Jesus' redeeming work. This is the moment where death was shattered. And Satan was defanged and hope was secured for all who belonged to Christ. This is why one theologian put it this way. This is, his name is Peter Lewis. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not an option for Christians. It is not an appendix to the gospel. It lies at the core of Christianity without Without it, Christianity would have been stillborn. For living faith cannot survive a dead Savior. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, if his body lay moldering in Joseph's tomb and is now forgotten dust, then death is still victorious and final. There is no good news for the dying if, for a Savior, we only have a ghost. And for a heaven, we shall only have a dream. So John, in John 20 and 21, takes pains to record Christ's resurrection in great detail. And he offers a variety of witnesses and evidences, each confirming beyond a doubt that death could not hold Jesus. Look at John 20, verse 1. We see the rolled away stone Confirming Jesus' resurrection. Verse 1 While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Look at verses 6 and 7. We have the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' empty grave clothes lying where he once was. Verse 6 Simon Peter entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. The clothes of death are still there but the living Christ is gone. Look at verse 13. We have angelic testimony of Jesus' resurrection. They ask Mary, why are you weeping? Why are, you, why are you sad? Why are you mourning? This is not a time to despair. This is a time to rejoice. Look at verse 14. Jesus makes his first resurrection appearance and then calls Mary by name. Verses 19 through 23, Jesus makes another appearance, this time to his apostles, without Thomas there, but to his apostles. They're in a locked room. He appears to them. Chapter 20 culminates a week later in verses 24 through 29 with another visit to the apostles. Now Thomas is there. We read in verse 28, the doubting apostle making that grand confession of faith. My Lord and my God. That is to say this, death could not confine you, Jesus I believe that you are indeed the self-sufficient one you claimed to be. You're the one who rules even the grave, my Lord and my God. And then chapter 21, we see Jesus appearing again to his apostles. Remember the Old Testament, two or three witnesses confirm something to be true. This is now the third appearance to Christ's apostles. If John's gospel was a biography of anyone else, anyone other than Jesus, then his story ends with the last verse of chapter 19, when two of Jesus' followers, verse 42, laid Jesus in the tomb. I can remember reading a biography now about 23 years ago. It was a biography of Jonathan Edwards, and I read the first 15 chapters, it was a 16-chapter book. First 15 chapters in a week, and then I put it down. and I didn't read the last chapter until a week later. Why? Because you know what's going to happen. Edwards dies. It's how every biography ends, but not the biography John writes of Jesus. The usual ending is the casket is closed, and the casket is lowered into the ground. That's how biographies end. But again, that is not how the story of Jesus ends. He lives. And the implications of this grand event are massive. They are massive for us. And so before we work our way through John 20 and 21, looking at these eyewitnesses, these evidences, of Jesus' resurrection, I want to ask a more fundamental question this morning. The question is this, why the resurrection? Why the resurrection? Why does Paul say if Christ has not been raised, if John 20 or 21 does not exist, then our preaching, Christ's gospel, that is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's worthless. Why is that? Why is the resurrection of first importance? Let's ask it this way. What did the resurrection achieve? What did it accomplish? Why would there be no gospel without it? And there are six answers to those questions. On Monday, I started with 14 answers to those questions. I've whittled it down to six this morning. Six accomplishments Six accomplishments of Jesus' resurrection, each carrying with them massive implications. And we'll break these accomplishments into three categories. All right, three categories. The first is what the resurrection accomplished for Jesus. For Jesus. The second is what Jesus' resurrection accomplished for his people, us. And the third category is what Jesus' resurrection accomplished for the unbelieving world. Three categories begin with the first one, what Jesus' resurrection accomplished for him. What it accomplished for him. And there are three accomplishments that fall into this category. Of course, there are more. We will look at three. The first is this. Accomplishment number one, Jesus' resurrection confirmed that he was the death conqueror the Old Testament promised. Jesus' resurrection confirmed that Jesus was the death conqueror the Old Testament promised. God's warning in Genesis 2, verse 17, that is clear. That in the day that Adam would eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and all of his descendants following him, that is us, that we would surely die. It's a warning that was proven to be true in Genesis 5, where we read Adam lived, and then he died. Seth lived, and he died. Enoch died. Kenan died. Jared died. And on, the, on and on the list goes. The chronicle of death. It continues even today. The point of Genesis 2, 3, 4, and then 5 is this because of Adam's sin, no one escapes death. The wages of sin must be paid. And yet, the Old Testament is also clear God is gracious. And he has promised not only a sin-paying substitute, but he has promised a death-defeating Savior. A Savior who would, according to Psalm 16, not be abandoned to Sheol. He would die, yes, but the grave would not hold him. The grave could not keep him. A death-defeating Savior who was a holy one who God would not allow to undergo decay. Seeing graciousness, God promising a suffering servant who would be pierced through for our transgressions. Yes, that's needed. And he'd be crushed for our iniquities. That's essential, That substitution. He must be treated as a sinner and thus he must be cut off. It's a word that means to be hacked. He's hacked from the land of the living. This is a violent, premature death. But though dead, the promise is that this pierced, crushed substitute who died, he would see his offspring. He would live. He would live to see all those for whom he died. So much so that God promises at the end of Isaiah 53 that he would prolong. His days. He would live to never die again. This is in grace. It is true, we needed a sacrifice for sin. We needed a substitute, but that was only part of what we needed. We also needed a conqueror of death, someone forsaken by God on behalf of others who would also live again. That's the gospel of Psalm 22. That's the flow. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then comes verse 22, that forsaken one will tell of God's name to his brethren. Though he dies, he lives. And he will be in the midst of the assembly and praise God. If Christ did not rise from the dead, if John's story of Jesus ends in chapter 19, then he is not the promised saving seed of Genesis 3. He is not the Holy One of Psalm 16. He is not the forsaken substitute of Psalm 22. He is not the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 in a word He is not the death conqueror that we desperately needed, who God had graciously promised. But if Christ did rise again from the dead, if John 20 and John 21 are true, then all of those Old Testament passages and promises, they belong to him and him alone. And death, now holds no sting for those who are united to that death conqueror. The words of one theologian, again, Peter Lewis, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead altered everything. It meant the end of a long era during which death reigned over all, the reversal of a process which had been inescapable since the fall. It changes everything. What did the resurrection accomplish for Jesus? It confirmed that he is the death conqueror promised throughout the Old Testament. It leads into accomplishment number two. From the Old Testament, we move into the new now. Jesus' resurrection also proved that he is the son of God he claimed to be. Jesus' resurrection proved that he is the son of God he claimed to be. How? Because if Jesus is truly the son of God, then every prediction he made about himself must come to pass. It must come to pass. And what was the most spectacular, let's put it on a human perspective, what was the most absurd prediction Jesus ever made? And that answer is easy it was that he would rise again from the dead. No one does that. And it's a prediction that Jesus was not shy to make about himself, it starts very early in Jesus' ministry. We're one week into his ministry, John 2. And Jesus warns the religious leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Verse 21 then adds, interpretation, he was speaking not of Herod's building. No, he was speaking of the temple of his body, his body and know who Jesus claims will wield this resurrection power. It was him. I will raise my body from the dead. It is true the Father raised Jesus from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, the Father performs this resurrection miracle. It is true, Romans one, the Spirit raises Jesus from the dead, but do not miss the promise and the prediction that Jesus makes here. This is his claim of deity. He too would raise himself from the dead. Resurrection is a Trinitarian act. And how could Jesus do this? Because according to Christ, he had the authority to lay down his life. He has the authority, not just the power but the right, to take it up again. To conquer death itself, he has that right, he has that power. Why? Because he is the Son of God. Because this command I receive from my Father, my authority over death is because I am God's eternal Son. And this promise of resurrection is repeated throughout Jesus' life. Mark 8. He began to teach his apostles that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, but death for sin is not all we needed. No, we need the end of verse 31, and after three days he will rise again. Jesus repeats this one chapter later in Mark 9, he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Now here's the timing of the resurrection. He'll repeat this again one chapter later. Mark 10, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. It's not to ascend the throne, but it's to go to a tomb, a cross and a tomb. Son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's now crucifixion. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. This is exactly what happens in every detail, but there's one other detail. And three days later, he will rise again. He's not shy to predict his own resurrection. And notice, this is not merely a prediction for his apostles. This is also a message for the unbelieving religious leaders. Matthew 12, be warned. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign, Jesus says, will be given to it, but one particular sign, only one. One irrefutable witness Jesus is the son he claimed to be. What is that sign? It will be the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's it. He won't stay there. You could add many other passages to these. It is the most outlandish prophecy you can make about yourself. I will conquer death. I'll raise myself from the dead. The grave will not hold me because of who I am. Who can say such a thing and then do such a thing? Anyone can say it, right? Anyone can say it. Who can do it? Answer, only the incarnate Son of God. Only the one who has been given authority not only to lay down his life, but also the right to take it up again. Only the one who truly is the resurrection and the life, John 11. So the implication is clear. If Jesus stayed in the tomb, then he was either a liar or a lunatic. One of the two. But if he did indeed rise again from the dead, exactly what he predicted, if that takes place, then he is the son of God he claimed to be. And that's the point of Romans 1, that Jesus was declared. He was declared the son of God with power. How? What power? What event? Here's how. By the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was God's public declaration. The resurrection was the Father's divine validation that Jesus was and is his eternal son. It's accomplishment number two. Jesus' resurrection proved that he is the son of God he claimed to be. It leads into accomplishment number three. Jesus' resurrection established his supremacy over the church. It's another accomplishment. His resurrection established Christ's supremacy over the church. And in a year where we will be focusing our attention on the preciousness of the local church, its structure, its calling, its goals, its purposes, this accomplishment is so key for us to understand. Listen to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, he, speaking of Christ, he is the head. He's the supreme one. He's the one who enjoys the position of highest and final authority. The word here refers to sovereign leadership and rule. He is the head of, over, the body, the church. That is why the verse above me, we... Have it up there. We proclaim Christ. He is the head. He's our master. We proclaim him. This is why we follow Christ. This is why we obey Christ. He is our leader, master, and chief. But the question is this. What gives Jesus this right to rule over the church? Answer, continue the verse, because... Verse 18, because he is the firstborn from the dead. That's why, that is to say, it is the resurrection that establishes Jesus' lordship over the church. Every time we meet, we proclaim the resurrection from the dead. It's because of his resurrection that Jesus is to be honored and obeyed and worshipped. Again, why? Why? Because it's through that resurrection that Christ triumphs over sin. and He destroys the forces of evil and he abolishes sin's eternal consequences. And now he has the authority to grant resurrection life to all who come to him in saving faith. So here's my question. Who else, other than the resurrected Lord, who else are we going to worship? Who else are we going to worship? Is it the person who's been here the longest at EBC? Is that what we're going to worship? Is it the person who gives the most to EBC? Do we worship that person? They're not the resurrected Lord. Who else are we going to worship? Who else are we going to follow? Finish the verse. Who else is going to be or have first place in what? Everything. Everything we say, everything we preach, everything we do, every act of worship we offer, he has first place in everything. First place within the church belongs only to the firstborn from the dead. In fact, we get a picture of Christ's resurrection supremacy over his church. We see it in the opening pages of Revelation. Revelation. So Revelation opens this way. Christ is described as, once again, the firstborn of the dead. Revelation 1, the firstborn of the dead. We're told that he holds the keys of death and Hades, and he's the resurrected one. Well, what do we see the resurrected Lord doing in all of his glory? What is he doing? He's walking amongst his church. Revelation 1. Revelation 2, he then speaks to his church. He calls his church to repentance. He warns his church of disobedience. And He also promises the faithful church blessing. He's in the midst of the church. He's active in the church. And why does Jesus possess this right, this supremacy? Answer, because he is the firstborn of the dead because he is the one who gives resurrection life to his people. What did Jesus' resurrection accomplish for him? One, it confirmed that he is the death conqueror the Old Testament promised. Two, it proved that he is the son of God he claimed to be. And three, it established his supremacy over the church. Could certainly add more to that, but we'll move into category number two. Category number two what Jesus' resurrection accomplished for his people, what Jesus' resurrection accomplished for us who have saving faith. We'll highlight two accomplishments here. Continue to build the list. Accomplishment number four. Accomplishment number four. Jesus' resurrection guarantees that Christ's sacrifice for our sin has been accepted. Jesus' resurrection guarantees that Christ's sacrifice for our sin has been accepted. Without the resurrection, Christ's work on the cross would be empty, empty of any saving value. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 4. Verse 25, he who was delivered over, there's the cross, he was delivered over because of our transgression. So Jesus must suffer for sin in the place of others. We've looked at that over the last few months, working our way through John 19. Absolutely essential. But notice there's an and statement added to this. Not only was Jesus delivered over because of our transgressions, but he was also, and he was raised, that's the resurrection, raised because of our justification. So that is to say this, without the resurrection, there would be no forgiveness of sin. Without the resurrection, there would be no righteousness of Christ that could be credited to our account. Without the resurrection, it seems obvious there would be no life to receive. If the father left the son in the tomb, it would mean that his sacrifice had not been accepted in full. Again, the but statement. But by raising Jesus from the dead, by raising him from the dead, the father gave public affirmation That Christ's death satisfied his wrath. Nothing else can satisfy the Father's wrath. By raising Jesus from the dead, that is public affirmation that there's no more sin to be paid for, no more wrath to be endured, no more suffering that is required to be accepted by the Father into his presence. This is why Paul says if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. There's no hope. There's no forgiveness, even though he died. One commentator is right. If his body was never raised from the dead, his death and his precious blood has no more power to do anything for man than the death of any other human being. But by raising Jesus from the dead, the Father is freed. He's just. He is freed because his wrath has been satisfied. He is free to accept the substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins. And he is free to then credit the perfect life of Jesus lived for us. And he credits that to our account. Again, to quote Peter Lewis, the father raised the son from the dead, not only because he was the son, but also because he had fulfilled his mission, completed his work, and finished his sacrifice of atonement. I love this. The resurrection is God's great act of amen, the father's acceptance of the cross the Father's amen to Christ's sacrifice for sin. The words of Peter, the apostle in Acts 5, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Why? Why does he raise him from the dead? Here's why. To grant forgiveness of sin. It is only through a risen Jesus that our sin can be atoned for and his righteousness become ours. This is why the full gospel has not been proclaimed if the resurrection has not been mentioned. It's not enough that he died. He must rise again from the dead. It's accomplishment number four. Jesus' resurrection guarantees that his sacrifice for our sin has been accepted leads into accomplishment number five. And this is for us now. Jesus's resurrection paved the way for his continual intercession on our behalf. Jesus's resurrection paved the way for his continual intercession on our behalf. Okay, so let's build, understand what our salvation requires. Yes, it requires Christ's work on the cross. That is true. Sin paid for. And yes, it requires Christ's resurrection from the dead that frees the Father to be just, to credit his Son's righteousness to our account and accept us into his presence. That is true. But understand, our final salvation, our endurance until glorification, requires more from Christ. Not more sacrifice. Not more payment for sin. This requires a continual intercession for us as he sits at the Father's right hand. That's Hebrews 7. Christ is able... To save forever. Final salvation, glorification. This is now endurance until this time. Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And how does Christ save us to the end? What do we need? He's able to save us to the end by always making intercession for us. That's his saving work now. We need the interceding work of Christ every moment of every day. We need his daily prayers for us. We need him pleading our case before the Father, representing us in his righteousness before the Father. Well, that is one reason why Jesus rose again. We needed it. He accomplished it. Listen to Romans 8. Look for the link between resurrection and intercession. Romans 8, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. But that's not where Paul stops. There's more that Christ must do. Again, not more sin to pay for. There's more that needs to be done so that we're brought into glory, which is why Jesus was raised, there's the link now, raised from the dead. He's seated at his father's right hand. Why, what's the point to intercede for us. To advocate for us, to represent us, to pray us into glory. He's interceding for us in the words of one author to secure for us the benefits of his death. That's what Christ is doing for us right now. He's bringing our names before The Father, which is why Paul's question in verse 35 is rhetorical. If it is true that we have the resurrected Jesus interceding for each and every one of us, if that is true, then here's the question who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will do that? The answer is no one. No one. Why? Because the one who died for us in love and was resurrected for us in love is now praying for us in love. He's praying for us to the Father who in love sent him to save us. And so the question is, who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. No one. Without the resurrection, not only would Christ's cross have been emptied of any saving power, but without the resurrection, we would have no daily advocates who is securing our salvation forever. But there was a resurrection. John's gospel does not end in chapter 19. And thus, continuing the passage into verse 39, Romans 8, and thus there is nothing and no one who is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, the resurrected and interceding Lord. It's accomplishment number five. Jesus' resurrection paved the way for his continual intercession on our behalf. leads now into the third category. The third category, what Jesus' resurrection accomplished for the unbelieving world. For the unbelieving world. And there is one main accomplishment to highlight here. One main accomplishment It is this, accomplishment number six. And it comes in the form of a warning. Jesus' resurrection warns every unbeliever that he will one day return in judgment. Jesus' resurrection warns every unbeliever that he will one day return in judgment. This was Paul's message in Acts 17. 1730. God is now, Paul says, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere. Sin is universal, the gospel call is universal. This is a gospel of grace, and the call is this, for sinners to repent, to turn to Christ in saving faith, to turn from their sin, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, to confess their own sinfulness, to turn from their idolatry against God. Why? Why is this being declared to all men? Answer, because God's patience with the unbeliever will not last forever because God's final wrath will one day fall. In fact, verse 31, he, God the Father, has fixed an inescapable day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Judgment is coming. It is certain Yes, there are mockers who say, who are you to talk about judgment? We haven't ever seen it in the past, never seen it in our lifetime. Judgment is coming. And he will judge the world in righteousness. Watch now, through a man, that's Christ, through a man whom the Father has appointed as this final judge. Now, here's the question. How do we know that this judgment will fall? How do we know that it is certain? How do we know that Jesus is this judge? Jesus. Finish the verse. Because the Father has furnished proof, evidence, a resounding witness. He's furnished proof to all men by raising him, the judge, by raising the judge, that is Christ, by raising him from the dead. We read it earlier to start our service, Acts 10, God raised Christ up on the third day, the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Let's put this in the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's a coming day, there's a coming day when the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire and judgment. And he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. For the believer, for the believer, the resurrection of Jesus is glorious and it is filled with joy and blessing and hope and privilege. But for the unbeliever, it is frightening. It confirms that there is coming wrath and final Judgment and Christ is that coming judge. And so I must ask you, which of these last two categories do you find yourself in? Do you belong to the resurrected Jesus? If you come to him through faith alone, is that you? If it is, rejoice in his resurrection, rejoice in it. Know that his payment for your sin has been accepted. Know that he's praying for you right now at his Father's right hand. Rejoice in that. But if that is not you, if you have never come to the resurrected Jesus in saving faith, turning from your sin, repenting of sin, then heed the warning of his coming judgment. And believe in your heart, at the core of your being, believe that God raised him from the dead. Believe Christ to be the conqueror of death you needed and the eternal son he claimed to be and the Lord who holds the place of supremacy in your life. Believe that. And then rest on his sacrifice alone to pay for your sin and his intercession to the Father for you. Rest on that, alone. Looking forward to the day when his resurrection becomes your resurrection. And you will finally see your Savior face to face. It's a two-edged sword. For the believer, there is joy. Joy. For the unbeliever, there is warning. Father, you have given us irrefutable proof that our Savior lives. And because of that, we have great hope, eternal hope. And yet, Lord, When the Father raises Christ from the dead, it is a warning to every unbeliever. Perhaps there are unbelievers here now. Holy Spirit, grant them eyes to see glory in the face of Christ. Give them a heart to repent and turn from their sin, to confess the glory of Jesus, to rest on his work alone, for their salvation from sin. Do that supernatural work now. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.